The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Luke, chapter 12. Continue this morning in our study of Luke's gospel, giving attention to verses 8 through 12. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 12. This is Jesus speaking, particularly to his disciples. There's a broader crowd that's there that's listening, and he says this. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I suspect you've never heard the name Elizabeth Bigley before. She lived and died long before anybody in this room. She was born in 1857, died in 1907, lived in a very different era of American history than you and I uh, have lived in. She lived in a time during which women were not allowed to vote uh, and certainly could not get a loan from a bank. But none of that stopped Elizabeth Bigley. Contemporaries in the late 1800s and early 1900s knew her not as Elizabeth Bigley, but as Cassie Chadwick, pseudonym by which she went, that she had assumed for herself. She was actually a Canadian con artist who came to the United States and pulled off one of the biggest cons in American history. She cooked up a scheme that was pretty remarkable. She passed herself off to several banks as the illegitimate daughter of Dale Carnegie and convinced banks to issue her loans based on the fact that she was set to inherit a portion of the Carnegie fortune. It was a very well thought out con because she rolled the dice on the fact that the banks would never actually go to confirm her relationship to Dale Carnegie out of fear for embarrassing him at having an illegitimate daughter. And the risk paid off. She was able to con banks out of over $5 million at the turn of the century. And close friends of Dale Carnegie an estimated $16.5 million. Cassie Chadwick, Elizabeth Bigley, one of the greatest con artists in American history, one of the greatest frauds that's ever lived, someone who passed herself off as someone that she absolutely was not and was so convincing that she was able to gather millions of dollars in a time when it was almost unthinkable for a woman to do such a thing. She was not authentically who she passed herself off to be. She was someone else. And as we've been working our way through Luke chapter 12, we've been dealing with this issue of authenticity. 
We've been dealing with this issue of spiritual integrity versus spiritual hypocrisy because Jesus, we've seen him confronting the religious leaders of his day who themselves were not authentically associated with the one true living God. They were fakes. They were, they were frauds. They were, in some ways, like Cassie Chadwick, they were passing themselves off to be people that they absolutely were not. Passing themselves off to be people who they couldn't have been further from the truth of who they actually were. And they'd fooled so many people. It was a spiritual scheme that had really corrupted their own souls and damned their own souls, but had drawn an awful lot of other people into the same kind of corruption and damnation. And Jesus has been sort of addressing this and confronting it here in Luke chapter 12. He's done it very directly. And then he turns his attention to his own disciples and begins to talk with them uh, after exposing the, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, the fraudulent nature of their claims. He begins to warn his disciples uh, about hypocrisy and how it's a, like leaven. It, it can corrupt the soul. It can permeate the whole person. And it can cause them to become frauds like these religious leaders of their day if they're not careful, if they're not on guard if they're not paying close attention to their lives and their walk with Christ, he calls them to be authentic, to be men of spiritual integrity. And although this, the sort of the, he shifts tone here in verse eight when he says, and I tell you, it's sort of a, a shift in the conversation. It isn't a shift of the theme. The theme continues. He's still talking about what it looks like to be authentic versus what it looks like to be a fraud. And although the text that we look at this morning has some sort of perplexing statements, some statements that have caused lots of angst and agitation over the years, that have caused an awful lot of theological debate and conversation, really, when we zoom out into the broader context and we see where this is embedded in the text, we realize that what's happening here is Jesus is just further de defining what it means to be an authentic Christian. What it means to be real versus fraudulent. And I'll summarize it in just sort of a central truth for you this morning. And, and I think this sort of captures where we're going to see, what we're going to see in the text. The central truth is just this. This is what an authentic Christian is. The authentic Christian is the one who responds to the Holy Spirit, who publicly confesses Jesus Christ, and who walks by faith in God's provision and protection. That's what an authentic Christian is. If you want to spot the fraud from the, from the real, you look for the person who responds positively to the Holy Spirit, who publicly confesses Jesus Christ, and who walks by faith in the protection and the provision that comes from God. Those are really the three thoughts that sort of compile into this composite of authentic Christianity here in our text. Even though the language is perplexing, the message is actually quite clear, quite clear. And so we'll sort of break it up into those three statements. What, is it, what does it mean to, to respond to the Holy Spirit versus blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What does it look like to confess Jesus versus to deny him? And what does it look like to walk by faith in his protection and provision when life is hard? So we'll just take them in order the way Luke gives them to us here. In verses 8 and 9, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior has always been foundational to Christianity. It is the central truth of Christianity. It is what forms the hub of all the theology of Christianity. At the center of it all is Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. The only way a person can be a Christian is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. At the end of the day, what Christianity has to offer, apart from every other religion in the world, what Christianity has to offer is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity does not primarily offer some sort of a moral code. It doesn't primarily offer some sort of a, a religious system. It doesn't primarily offer a list of behaviors. It primarily offers 
God in human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who comes and says, I am the Savior of the world, and if you want to be redeemed, if you want to be reconciled to your Creator, then you must bow before me as Savior and Lord, the one who will die on your behalf. That is Christianity at its heart. It's not a moral code. It's not a religion. It's not a system. At the center of Christianity is Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. The fulfillment of all Old Testament messianic prophecy. The one who was born of a virgin. The, the one who was true God in human flesh. The one who lived a perfect life. The one who taught like nobody else taught. The one who went around doing miracles to validate the truths of what he was saying. Healing the sick, raising the dead, opening blind eyes, calming seas. The one who was crucified on a Roman cross. The one who was buried in a borrowed tomb. The one who was raised to life three days later. And the one who's ascended and exalted to the right hand of the Father where he's now ruling and reigning. That is Christianity at its heart. Jesus Christ. God in human flesh. And the only way to be a Christian is to confess him as such. It's to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And a man or a woman's eternal destiny hangs in the balance on how they respond to Jesus. Eternal destiny hangs on the balance of how we respond to this man, Jesus Christ. Our eternal destiny does not hang in the balance on how well we perform the moral code of Scripture. Our eternal destiny does not hang in the balance of how often we pray or how much Bible we memorize or how often we attend religious services. Our eternal destiny hangs in the balance on what we do with Jesus Christ, whether or not we confess him as Savior and Lord. The Bible makes this abundantly clear. In Luke chapter 10, just a couple chapters back in the gospel we've been studying, Jesus said, the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And by a very simple statement, he eliminates the possibility of somehow rejecting Jesus, but being right with God. He eliminates that as a viable possibility. He says the only way to be made right with God is to confess me. You reject me, you reject him. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father except by me. By me. In John chapter 5, verse 23, he says this, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 23, we find this. John writes, no one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. The only way that a person can be made right with their heavenly Father, with God, is to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There is no other way. In Romans chapter 10, Paul makes this abundantly clear. He says, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart that one believes and is justified, and it's with the mouth that one does what? That confesses and is saved. The way to salvation, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, in 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 4, John is writing about how do you discern the spirits? How do you tell which spirits are from God and which ones are not? And this is what he says in 1 John 4, 2 through 3. He says this, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. How do you know which spirit is the spirit from God and which one is not? The one who confesses Jesus is the one that's from God, and the one who doesn't is not. It's clear. How do you tell which men belong to God? The same way. The ones who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior belong to him. 
and the ones who do not, do not. Here in Luke's gospel, Luke says, or he records Jesus saying, everyone who, if you're reading an ESV translation, which is what we typically teach out of here, it says everyone who acknowledges me before men. The, the Greek word there is homologeo, and it can carry a lot of different sort of connotations. It can mean confess, acknowledge, admit, declare openly. I don't think acknowledge is the best rendering here. Other translations use the word confess, and I think it's a better word. In English, the word acknowledge is very passive quite frequently in the way we use it. In other words, I can acknowledge something and not be intimately acquainted with it. I can just acknowledge your presence and never engage you, right? I mean, you, you can see me in the hallway and I can acknowledge you, but have no interaction with you whatsoever. That's how we use the word in English. The word confess is a much better word because it's richer and it carries more connotation to it. What does Jesus mean here when he says, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of, men will, son of man will also confess before the angels of God. The idea here of this word in context is, is to commit oneself to something uh, with some sort of a promise or confession. It's to commit oneself to something with a promise or a, a public confession. To confess Christ in the context means to openly declare that what is true about him, his person and his works. It's to say publicly, Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and he has done what he said he did. And everything that he's declared is true. He is indeed God in human flesh, come to redeem his people. To confess Christ is to use Paul's language to confess with the mouth that he's Lord and to believe in the heart that God's raised him from the dead. It's to irrevocably bow before him as Lord. That's what it means to confess Christ. It is to once and for all to bow before him as Lord and Savior. And the result of that is a transformed life that's made into his image, being progressively changed into Christ's likeness. That's what it means to confess Christ. One of the most powerful ways that any of us can confess Christ is through baptism. Through standing in the waters and, and publicly confessing that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And saying in sort of pictorial fashion for anybody who wants to see, to see that we used to be sinners, but Christ has saved us and he's washed our sin away, he's forgiven us, and he's given us new life. All of the symbolism of baptism is not about just going through a religious ritual. It's about a man or a woman standing in front of a, a public assembly and saying, I'm confessing Christ. I belong to him. He's my Lord and Savior, and I'll never be the same. There's a difference, though, between confessing Christ and professing Christ. A difference between confessing Jesus and just professing Jesus. To profess Jesus is to identify him in, in word only. It's to claim to be something, to claim to be related to him in a certain way, but to not authentically be related to him in that way. Isaiah illustrates it from the people in his day in Isaiah 29 when he says of the congregation that's gathered, this is God speaking, he says, these people, they draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their what? With their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There are people who profess association with God, but they weren't truly confessing association with God. It was words only. But to confess is, is a whole different thing. It's to identify with Jesus with our whole self. It's our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a, it's a, a, a bowing of the life before him to obey and to honor him with our whole selves. Our words and our actions align in confession and submission to his lordship. And regardless of the persecution and regardless of the pressure that comes because of that particular decision, it is an irrevocable decision. When a person truly confesses Christ, hardship can come, and persecution can come, and difficulty can come, and disappointment can come, but they don't turn away. They don't walk away. 
Those who confess Christ are those who live with spiritual integrity before God, who hold fast to their confession. Christ is speaking to the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, verse, 20, verse 13, and he says this of them. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. What a remarkable thing to say to a church, a church who's all confessing Jesus Christ. He's saying, I commend you because your confession is proved to be true. In the midst of great persecution, even one of your church members has been killed for his faith in Christ, and you have not walked away. The fact that you haven't is evidence that you are confessing me as your Lord and Savior. You and I live in a different time and a different day than the first century, We live in a time and in a place where many, many people profess Jesus but don't confess Jesus. Where numerous people in our culture, if you were to ask them, are they a Christian, they would say yes, but their lives give no evidence to validate that claim whatsoever. If you were to ask them, what is your faith background? They would say, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus. And yet when you look at their lives, their lives look like the world. They live like the world. They love the things of the world. There's no desire to study his word. There's no desire to share their faith with anybody. There's no concern for living a holy life. There is no evident love for Christ or love for his church. There's no evident gratitude for his saving work. There's no desire to be connected to a a local body where they worship and serve and study with the others who belong to Christ, who've confessed Christ. None of that is is present. They think that simply making a, a verbal profession of association with Christ that they're safe. They think that by just coming to church here, there, and occasionally, they're good. They think that by being moral and being semi-religious that they've earned God's favor and everything's fine. They're professing Christ, but they're not confessing Christ. It's a remarkable problem in our culture. People who do that are only self-deceived. To truly confess Christ is to bow before him as Lord and Savior. And to plant your stake in the ground saying, he is my Savior and Lord forever. What happens to those who do such a thing? Well, Jesus says, everyone who does that, who acknowledges me, who confesses me before men, the Son of Man, that's him, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Those who confess Jesus will have Jesus confess them before the angels of God, which is simply another way of saying at the final judgment. You say, how do you know that? Because Matthew chapter 10, verse 33, Matthew records the same conversation. And there he records it this way. He says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. He's talking about the final judgment. And we won't take the time this morning to walk through it all, but you can do this study on your own. You can go through the Bible and you can do a little study on angels and you can see how, how, how frequently angels are associated with judgment. Quite frequently, they're associated with judgment. If you were to look in Matthew 13, just one example, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, we're told there uh, at the end of that parable, Jesus explains it by saying this, so it will be at the end of the age that the angels will come out and they'll separate the evil from the righteous. He's talking about it, the judgment. But the message Christ is delivering to his people here is this. When it counts the most... Christ will confess his lordship over his people. Those who've confessed him will have him confess them at the final judgment. What a wonderful promise that is, don't you think? That whatever happens to you in this life because of your confession of Jesus Christ, you have no worries about what's going to happen in the life to come because on the authority of the word of Christ himself, if you confess him here, he will confess you there. To confess Jesus in this life is to have Jesus Christ confess us at the final judgment. And let me tell you something, my friends. You couldn't have a better advocate at that point in time. This is an important message for his disciples to hear because confessing Jesus was going to come at tremendous cost to them. 
It was, gonna, it was going to invite persecution into their lives. And most of them were, were ultimately going to be killed because of their confession of Jesus. It was going to cost them tremendously. And although that confessing of him was going to invite persecution and it was going to invite rejection in their lives here in this world, it meant that the Son of God was going to secure them at the final judgment. So for them to stand up for Jesus now meant Jesus was going to stand up for them later. And they needed to know that. They needed to hear that from him. Because when the heat started to come and their lives were hanging in the balance, they needed to know that it was that it was worthwhile. They needed to know that there was no risk involved in laying down their lives for Christ because Christ was going to stand for them. And so he gives them this wonderful promise. Even though temporarily they might have to deal with the wrath of men, they could know for sure that they would never have to deal with the eternal wrath of God because Christ was standing on their behalf. In the book of Acts, we get a little glimpse into how this plays out. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, we have in context an early leader in the early church, a man by the name of Stephen, who's confessed Christ and he's being killed for it in Acts chapter 7. He's being stoned, in fact, for his confession of Christ. And here's what we see in verse 55. Just as this man is about to give his dying breath because of his confession. But he, that's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. And what else did he see? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. What a remarkable thing. Jesus said, you stand for me and I'll stand for you. And here's this man about to die and give his last breath for Christ because he confessed him in this life. And God opens up heaven. And he gives this man a glimpse into glory. And it's as though he's saying, Stephen, what I promised is true. What I promised is true. You stood for me and I'm standing for you. What an encouragement that had to be for that man, huh? Can you imagine facing death for Christ? Facing, giving your last breath for him? I mean, what do you need to know in that moment? What do you need to be reminded of in that moment when all of the anxieties and fears and temptations coming at you and the old enemy of your soul is whispering into your ear, it's all a lie. Deny Christ. What you need to know is that Christ is standing at the Father's right hand on your behalf. That your, your life is not being given in vain. And that's exactly what God graciously allowed Stephen to see in that moment as he gave his life for Christ. Christ says, you, you stand up for me, I'll stand up for you. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. But the flip side is true. The one who denies me, the one who denies me before men, will be denied before the angels of God. Now, you don't catch this necessarily in the English translation, but when you look to the Greek language, the, the verb here for deny is in a, a different, it's in a different tense. It's, it's cast a different way, and you don't really catch it in the English. But the, the, it really should look like this in English. Whoever has denied me, before men. And it has carries with it the idea of a continuing action in, the, in, in sort of the past. So the idea here isn't some sort of a, a one-time mistake where somebody has faltered in their faith in a moment of weakness. The idea is somebody who has consistently denied him by the testimony of their life. At the final judgment, the judgment is going to be rendered on the basis of a pattern of, of life history. Not some one-time denial of Jesus. It is the pattern of life of denying Christ. We know this has to be true, right? We have examples of, 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 of one as, as highly thought of as Peter, the apostle, who denied Christ in a moment of weakness, not once, not twice, but how many times? Three times. And Christ restored that man. 
So here he can't be talking about some sort of a, a momentary lapse in our faith, sometime, some momentary uh, event where, we've, we, where the pressure has crushed in on us and we just gave in, denied Christ in some way. Just as he's saying that the life pattern of confession breeds uh, a confession of Christ for the man, he's saying a life pattern of denying Christ is going to mean when you stand before the judgment, the Son of Man denies you. Away from me, I never knew you, is what you hear. The parallel that's being built here by Jesus is the same parallel he builds with multiple illustrations. He's a, it's a parallel between those who confess him and those who deny him. And it's the same parallel that he makes with a good tree and a bad tree, that he makes with a, a house built on a rock and a house built on the sand, with a, a narrow gate and a wide gate. He makes this parallelism all the time that really just describes a very central and clear truth, that, that when you look across all of humanity, there are only two kinds of people, those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and those who deny him. And there is no other category. And those who confess him, find him confessing them. And those who deny him will stand at the final judgment. And they'll hear Christ say, I do not know you. You are not mine. So to be saved, one has to confess Jesus Christ in this life as Lord and Savior. But here's the thing. The only way that a person can confess Christ is through the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no way for a person to confess Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, the Bible makes very clear that it is the particular work of the Holy Spirit to point people to Jesus Christ and to his saving work. It is the particular work of the Holy Spirit to do that. It is the particular work of the Holy Spirit to open men's eyes to the person and the work of Christ. It is the particular work of the Holy Spirit to convict men of their sin and their rebellion against the Lord. Jesus told that to us in, in John chapter 16, verse 8, when he says, I'm getting ready to go, and I'm going to send to you a helper, and when he comes, he's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict men of their sin and their righteousness. It is the particular work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the truth of the gospel in the heart and the mind of a man or a woman. He opens their eyes to, to see it and their heart to believe it. He illuminates them to the truth of the gospel contained in the Word of God. It is the particular work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the cold, dead heart of a man or a woman and make it come alive to Christ. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, we see this. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The only way a person can confess Christ is to be regenerated. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate our cold, dead hearts and make them come alive to Christ. For a man or a woman to believe, God has to bring the spiritually dead to life. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, God doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea. He pulls up a corpse. He takes him to the bank and he breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. That is a vivid description of the particular work of the Holy Spirit and the work of salvation. It's his work to do this. The word of God is the instrument that he largely uses to do his work, but it's the Holy Spirit who brings the dead to life. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, he says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, except how? In the Holy Spirit. The only way a person, track with me here, can, can, can be saved and redeemed is to confess publicly Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and all that entails. But the only way they can do that is by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives and in them. And that is why, my friends, it is such a dreadful thing. It is such a horrific thing. It is such a damning thing to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. It's a fatal sin because the Holy Spirit is the only way that a person can confess Christ and be saved. And so he tells us in verse 10, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. That is simply to say, 
A person can misunderstand who Christ is, who can, they can at some point not confess him, but be enlightened to the truth about who he is later. We think of someone like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted the church, who hated Christ, who hated the church, who hated the gospel, and he, he, he spoke against the Son of Man all the time, but God slammed him on his back on the road to Damascus and opened his eyes and showed him who Christ was and redeemed that dead man's heart and soul, Right? That took place. He spoke against the Son of Man, but was forgiven. But here Jesus says, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This text has caused all kinds of consternation throughout the generations. People say all kinds of crazy things about it. What does this text actually say to us? Well, it says to us a couple of things. That there is a sin... That's often referred to as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's how Jesus cast it here. There is some sort of a sin that does this, that is this, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It is an unforgivable sin. It is a sin from which you don't come back. And it at least says here that it can be committed. So what does all that mean? It's caused all kind of Christians consternation, wondering, how many times have I sat in my office talking with somebody Anxious and worried that somehow they've committed this sin and are somehow banned from eternal life. People have all these fears that it's some sort of a one-time sin that's irreversible, that it can be something that we accidentally commit and we can't recover from. And when you read, you find all kinds of explanations for what this actually means. There are some people who say that it simply means rejecting Jesus, that the blaspheme of the Holy Spirit is to reject Jesus. Well, it can't be simply that. Because again, we could use the Apostle Paul. He rejected Jesus multiple times before he received Jesus. There's got to be more to it. He actively persecuted the church. And in fact, all of us at some point rejected Jesus in some way, shape, or form. So it can't be simply that. Some people would argue that it's rejecting Jesus until you die, which seems to be really just a way to explain away the text and make it sort of meaningless. The text seems to indicate that there's an actual sin and that it can be committed in this life. Some charismatic groups even argue that this sin is the, the rejection of the charismatic gifts and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. To reject those things is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But this text has nothing to do with that whatsoever. So what is this about? Well, in order to understand it, we need to have some context about God's forgiveness, right? Throughout the Bible, God has promised his people that when they confess their sin and repent, he will do what? He'll forgive their sin. And he says it over and over, all the way back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, Psalm 103, verses 2 and 4. The psalmist writes, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who does what? Forgives all your iniquities. Forgives all your iniquities. How many? All of them. In Micah 7, 18 and 19, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the, rem, uh, the remnant of his inheritance? You don't stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl, how many of our iniquities? All of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to purify us from how much unrighteousness? From all of our unrighteousness. So whenever the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit is here, it has to be understood in light of these texts and many more that say the same thing. And as we trek through the Bible from front to back, we see example after example of people of God who did horrible things and were forgiven. So what are we talking about here? What is Luke trying to, to say? Or what is Jesus trying to say? And Luke is trying to help us understand here. Well, it's a difficult passage if we just isolate ourselves to Luke because Luke leaves it a little bit vague. But thankfully, Mark doesn't leave it vague and he helps us. So if you would, you can turn to Mark, Mark chapter 3 in your Bible and we can see the parallel passage to this. It's very, very helpful. Mark records Jesus saying this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
It's very similar. The language is a little different. But what Mark gives us is a broader context. If you were to zoom backwards in Mark chapter 3 up to verse 22, we have a very important verse that helps us here. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. So what is going on? Jesus has been, he has been teaching truth all over the place. He has been teaching like no other. And he has been saying that he is the son of God come in human flesh. And he has been saying over and over what men need to do in order to be saved. And he has been performing miracle after miracle after miracle to validate the truth of the message that he's been preaching. He's been teaching it over and over, preaching it over and over, doing miracles to validate it over and over. And the more he taught and the more miracles he performed, nothing satisfied the Jewish people who opposed him. Nothing satisfied the religious leaders who were opposed to him. There was no amount of teaching. There were no amount of miracles that would convince them. All those things did was harden them even further. And while Jesus was teaching and while Jesus was performing miracles, the Holy Spirit was at work doing his thing, authenticating the truth of the message, empowering the miracles, and exposing their sin right in front of them. But there was no amount of evidence that was sufficient to convince them. Their hearts were harder and harder toward Christ. The religious leaders had all the evidence that they could have. They had the whole of the Old Testament. They had the complete fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy staring them literally in the face, claiming to be the Messiah, doing the works that proved it. They had the authenticating, empowering, convicting work of the Holy Spirit at work all around them. And their conclusion in front of all of that is, he's from Satan. All of this is satanic. That's what's happening here. They had the full revelation of Christ. They had the full illumination of the Holy Spirit. They had all the revelation that God could possibly give them, and they concluded that Christ was satanic. And so Jesus concluded it's impossible for them to be saved. It's impossible. There's no further revelation that can be given to them. They've seen it all. They've heard it all. They've seen me in person. They've heard what I've said. They've watched what I've done. They have the full work of the Holy Spirit at work in and all around them. And their conclusion and their selfish hard-heartedness is it's all from Satan. This isn't from God. It's from Satan. And once they've been given the full revelation by the Holy Spirit, there's nothing more to be given. There's no more information to give them. There's no further proof that can be presented. It's absolutely hopeless. There's no more gospel to share. There's no more illumination by the Holy Spirit to be given. I mean, they're done. What else are you going to do? There's nothing else to be done. When a person has seen all the evidence and heard all the gospel and their conclusion is he's from Satan, that's it. That's it. The sin is unpardonable, not because it's somehow more hideous than other horrible sins men commit. It's unpardonable because in committing it, they cut themselves off from the only redeeming grace available to them. They've seen it all, they've heard it all, and they've said it's satanic. What else can you do? There's nothing. Well, because our time is up, I'll just give you this quote from theologian Herman Bavinck. It's a little wordy, but it's worth listening to and trekking along with. He speaks of this sin and he says this, a sin against the gospel in its clearest revelation. Not in doubting or simply denying the truth, but in a denial which goes against the conviction of the intellect, against the enlightenment of conscience, against the dictates of the heart, in a conscious, willful, and intentional imputation of the influence and working of Satan to that which is clearly recognized as God's work, in a willful declaration that the Holy Ghost is the spirit of the abyss, that truth is a lie, and that Christ is Satan himself. It's a great summary 
of what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus is talking about here. It is not an accidental sin that a Christian can stumble into. It is the intentional, willful, conscious, continuous rejection of Jesus Christ with all the evidence on the table denouncing him as satanic. Those who are worried or concerned that they might have committed it show by their worry and their concern that they have not committed it. For those who've committed it don't care about sin. They don't care about any of these things because they've shut it all off and rejected it offhand. Well, the last bit here is this. Those who are authentic, they confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by responding to the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And the result of that is that they walk by faith in God's protection and provision. This last piece is so simple and so clear. He simply says to them, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you'll defend yourself or what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. These men needed to know this because in short order, they were literally going to have this experience. They're going to be dragged in front of courts. They're going to be dragged in front of synagogues. And they're going to be put on trial. And these are, if you remember these disciples are, they're, they're blue-collar workers. These are not intellectually elite men. They're not men who are trained in theology. They're not men who had mastered the Old Testament like the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And there would have been a legitimate fear in their minds. How are we going to stand up under this kind of examination? How are we going to go match wits with these intellectual high people with these people who've mastered the Old Testament, with these people who spent their whole lives debating theology, there would be a real temptation for them to be overcome with anxiety and fear. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, don't worry about that stuff. When this stuff goes down, you don't have to be afraid. All you have to do is walk by faith. Trust in my protection and provision. When you get into that spot, you know what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit He's going to teach you exactly what you need to say. In that moment, he's going to teach you. In that moment, you'll get what you need. Don't worry about it. And if you were to read the book of Acts, you would see that they took that to heart. They took that to heart. We're told on a couple of occasions when they're drugged before the authorities, particularly Peter and John, it says they're filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter spoke. Christ made good on his promise. And you know, the odds are you and I are probably not going to be drugged before a court for our faith and our confession in Jesus Christ. Although we might. I read a story this morning about a man, and I can't remember what state, I want to say Pennsylvania, but I could be wrong, who at 7 a.m. in the morning had between 25 and 30 FBI agents surround his house, armed to the hilt, weapons drawn, banging on his door, terrifying his seven children and his wife, dragging him out of his house and carting him off to jail, not for, not for murder, not for protesting through a town and torching the city, not for threatening anybody, for the simple crime of confessing Jesus Christ to people walking into an abortion clinic and begging them not to slay their children on the altar of American convenience. When an antagonistic protester got in the face of his 12-year-old son and began to threaten him, he got in the way and he pushed the man a little bit away from his child. The man falls down, wasn't injured. Charges were brought, he was vindicated. Charges were dropped, but the Justice Department apparently took up the case and surrounded his house and drug him out like he was a criminal sitting in jail as far as I know right now. I don't know anything about this man or about the ministry he does. But I'll tell you what, it's not a good sign for our culture when simply confessing Christ and begging people to obey him and not kill their children can get your house surrounded by FBI agents that get you thrown in jail. The day may come when you and I have to stand before court and confess Christ. It may. I think quite possibly... It can happen in our lifetime. Just like it did for these men. But when you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by responding to the work of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live in fear of that stuff. 
We can speak against it. We can call out the injustice, but we don't have to live in fear because the Spirit of God will help us in the moment and he'll give us exactly what we need. And it doesn't matter what God calls you to do, whether it's teach a class or whether it's serve in a ministry or whether it's do something here, there, or whether it's share your faith with your next door neighbor. You know what? You're not to be living in fear and anxiety. We're to go do those things, trusting in God's provision that in the moment we need it, we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to be able to answer all the questions. We don't have to be able to meet all the objections. We just go in faith and we trust that in the moment when we need it, the spirit of God will give us what we need. And he does every time God's people do that. So what's the real Christian? The real Christian is the person who responds to the work of the Holy Spirit rather than denies it. The response to the work of the Holy Spirit by confessing Jesus Christ publicly as Lord and Savior and follows that up by living a life that's a walk by faith, trusting in Him to provide and to protect. Is that you? Is that you this morning? There is a warning here if you haven't come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There is a warning, and the warning is this. Every time you hear the gospel of Jesus and you don't respond to the Holy Spirit, when you hear that you're a sinner and you know in your heart that it's true, when you hear that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, buried, raised on the third day, seated and exalted, and it resonates in your heart and you know that there's truth in all of that and you don't respond, You're suppressing the work of the Holy Spirit. And every time you do that, you're pushing yourself further and further away from the gospel. And there can come a point in life where that work and that word is so dull that you don't even hear it anymore. Don't do that this morning. Christ is calling you to himself. You need to respond and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confess it with your mouth. Right after worship this morning, I'll be in the back. I would love to talk with you if you have questions about that or if you need to make that decision, if you need to figure out what does that look like for me to do that, it would be my great joy to talk with you about it right after worship. We'll have others back there who will as well. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you're remarkable. Men go to hell, it's not because you didn't warn them. If people find themselves at the final judgment hearing from you away from me, I never knew you, it's not because they weren't told. And everybody in this room knows it for sure because we've just read it and we've just heard it from your own lips. And so Lord, I pray that if there's somebody in here who has been suppressing the work of the Holy Spirit as he has been pointing them to you time and time again, that right now would be the time that they stop resisting that and they confess you as Lord and Savior. Lord, for the rest of us in the room, it's a good moment for us to examine our own hearts and ask, is that the mark of our life? Or is it clear to everybody that we're authentic Christians because we've responded in such a way that we respond to the Holy Spirit? We've confessed Jesus Christ and we live lives that are a walk by faith. Holy Spirit, we need your work in our lives this morning to know the truth about ourselves and the truth about Christ. Make yourself known to us personally and privately and draw us where we need to go. We pray for Jesus' sake, amen.